the next couple of episodes of the history of film deal with a movie called The Birth of a Nation. It is one of the most important movies ever made, and it also promotes racial hatred, white supremacy, and will require me to discuss, rather frankly, attempted rape, sexual assault, foundationless and harmful stereotypes of black people, and terrorism. It is a deeply immoral film, and is, very likely, the movie that has caused more real harm to human beings than any other. I usually try to keep a fairly light tone around here, but that's not going to work today. What you are about to hear is a portion of a staged interview between D.W. Griffith and actor Walter Houston, originally recorded for the 1930 theatrical re-release of The Birth of a Nation. When you made The Birth of a Nation, did you tell your father's story? Oh, no, no, I don't think so. Well, after you mention it, perhaps I did. How long did it take you? How long does it take to make anything? I suppose... Oh, I suppose it began when I was a child. I used to get under the table and listen to my father and his friends talk about the battles they'd been through and their struggles. And those things impressed you deeply, and I suppose that got into the birth. You, uh... You feel as though it were true? Yes, I feel so. Oh, that's natural enough, you know, and you've heard your father tell about fighting day after day, night after night, and having nothing to eat but parched corn, and about your mother staying up night after night sewing robes for the clan. The clan at that time was needed and served a purpose. Yes, I think it's true. But as Pontius Pilate said, truth, What is the truth? I don't know about you, but that whole interview meant to exude the class and poise of one of the world's most famous southern gentlemen, gives me the creeps. Particularly that last bit, truth, what is the truth? It sounds to me like Griffith is trying to give himself an out, a way of saying that the movie he made was true, if that word truth meant anything at all. I could only assume that that's probably not what he meant by it, but that is what it means. Griffith invites his audience to believe in a strange world where the pure, unblemished white womanhood of the South really was in constant danger of sexual predation by black men, which is not true. That the white supremacist, terrorist organization who calls themselves the Ku Klux Klan was just and righteous, which it was not and that it was right to prevent black people from voting because all they would do was cheat and lie anyway, which they did not. This, Griffith says, was true. By the way, what is truth? I 
I may not be able to answer that question, what is truth, to the full satisfaction of Socrates, but I will tell you a list of things that are true. And I mean really, factually, true. The 1915 D.W. Griffith movie, The Birth of a Nation, was financially successful. It was widely praised in its own day, at least by white male critics from the United States, as being a movie that secured cinema's place as the most important form of public art of the 20th century. It was, at the time, one of the most expensive movies ever made. Its use of cross-cutting for suspense is the most effective we've yet seen on this podcast. It was less groundbreaking than many people have said. It is more important to film history than some people now suggest. At its release, it revived the then-dormant Ku Klux Klan and thus led directly to the torture and murder of an unknowable number of black people. The birth of a nation's racial stereotypes are harmful and unfounded. Black communities in the United States organized and protested the release of this harmful movie, and black filmmakers used their own art to respond to the birth of a nation. All of that is true. And all of that is why The Birth of a Nation is the most famous movie of the 1910s, and why Griffith is the director everybody talks about still. And so will we. This is the 24th episode of the history of film, The Birth of a Nation. My friends, no story ever written for the screen is as dramatic as the story of the screen itself. Tonight, we write another chapter in that story. Alright, I know we just did the intro, but before we begin, I want to make something absolutely clear. White supremacy is wrong. Like, hell on earth wrong. The ideas and systems supported by the birth of a nation hurt everyone they touch. Its notions are poisonous. Hopefully, through the next two episodes, we'll be able to see that ourselves. Okay, golly wally, how do we tackle this? I think we'll have to do it in sections. First, we'll talk about the original inspiration for The Birth of a Nation. Second, we'll talk about the filmmaking process, pre-production, and use of multiple units. Then we'll take a break until next week, before we dive into episode 25. Then we will thirdly actually watch The Birth of a Nation, by which I mean I will tell you about its plot, what techniques work well in the movie and what techniques do not, and then how the movie was shown. We will also cover how people responded to the movie including how black communities in the United States did so. So, with all that covered, without further ado, Part 1. The Inspiration Here in the distant year of 2021, people tend to talk about the birth of a nation as a foundational text of American racism. That is absolutely true. It does and has done immeasurable harm. But what isn't really discussed is that this famous movie was based on what was in its own day, a famous book. A famous book written by one of the loudest voices yelling his racist and sexist ideas at the turn of the century, Thomas Dixon. 
Thomas Dixon was born in South Carolina in the 1860s, into a world that would be deeply influenced by the American racial terrorist organization, the Ku Klux Klan. Dixon's uncle was the leader of the Klan in his hometown of Piedmont, and as he recalls it, one of his earliest memories was watching the Klan parade through the streets while he was reassured of their cause by his mother. This perhaps explains his seeming obsession with the group later in life. In his adulthood, Thomas Dixon would become a firebrand preacher who consistently sought the highest pulpit he could find to reach the largest audience he could get to. And when Dixon found his audience, he would preach his gospel. The gospel of white supremacy, the saintly woman as the center of the Homan family, and the evils of anything he thought smacked of socialism. This trinity of deeply held and basically misguided beliefs would form the core of his created work. Take his sermons, for example. They were what you would expect. According to one writer for the journal American Heritage, while preaching in New York, Dixon, quote, drew crowds with increasingly sensational speeches against feminism, populism, and black rights. Dixon was popular in the communities that he preached in and was very successful, but, as far as I can tell, was pretty much just that, a successful preacher who was respected in his community. Always seeking more, he would later become a lecturer, until in 1901, everything changed. That's when Dixon saw a play of the famous anti-slavery story, Uncle Tom's Cabin. He was outraged at this portrayal of the pre-war South as being cruel and violent to the enslaved people who lived there. Determined to tell what he claimed was the true story of the South, Dixon, at the age of 38, published the first of what would become a trilogy of novels describing the rise of the organization that would reclaim the South for the whites, the Ku Klux Klan, Yikes. One of these novels, The Klansman, became a runaway bestseller, even though the book isn't exactly what you would call great writing. The Klansman sold more than one million copies, an impressive figure to this day, and one that is deeply disturbing. High on the success of his novel, Dixon adapted his own book, The Klansman, into a play which he acted in, and it was a popular success, though perhaps unsurprisingly it was extremely controversial to say the least. How could it not be? This play and novel fanned the flames of political oppression that were settling like an oppressive snow across the South. As Jim Crow laws, or laws that restricted the individual freedoms of black Americans, were establishing ever firmer footholds in the United States, Dixon's work was, as one writer described it, a clanging peon to white supremacy, and served as a rallying point for race hatred. As is one of the great themes of this episode, these books did real harm, and like many works that reinforce cultural biases against groups of people, we will never fully be able to calculate the exact amount of harm that they did. So we have a best-selling book, adapted into a popular play, extolling the virtues of the South before the Civil War and reinforcing white supremacism. You'd never guess who that would attract. D.W. Griffith, to whom it was like catnip. Griffith was fresh off working on Judith of Bethulia and was looking for material for his new movie. He was determined to make it bigger and better than any one that came before it. For Griffith, the Klansmen provided the perfect answer. 
I'm not exactly sure how people went about getting the rights to adapt books into movies in the 1910s, but however it happened, Griffith did it. And so, with Dixon's blessing, The Klansman would become a movie. I've spent time talking about this for two reasons. The first is that movies, as an art form, are not made in a vacuum. Understanding the way that paintings, plays, and books, even evil and wrong-headed ones, impact movies is part of understanding movies. Second, I think it's important to know that D.W. Griffith and the Birth of a Nation did not invent the racism they spread. Instead, they reflected and reinforced it. Like everything attributed to the Birth of a Nation, the movie invented nothing and popularized everything, even its message and themes. Part 2. The Gestation of a Movie In 1914, with the rights to adapt the Klansmen in hand, Griffith felt he finally had a story that he could use to compete with the Italian spectacles, the movies that had so thoroughly shown up his own work as a filmmaker. Griffith set to it, partnering with a co-writer to adapt the novel into a film, and in doing so, they changed a lot. As every screenwriter knows, books are not movies, and making changes to source material is necessary to make stories and books work on screen. In this case, Griffith and his co-writer changed more than usual. I mean, I thought Jurassic Park changed a ton in adaptation, but wow, these guys changed the book. Oh, they didn't alter the racism or clan or anything. As you heard in the interview with Griffith at the beginning, he was just as obsessed with that as Dixon was. No, Griffith and company actually took the book further, making the whole first half of the movie set before the events of the novel. This included depictions of the heavenly paradise that was the antebellum South, famous Civil War events and massive battles, none of which are in the book, a book set completely after the war. Having finished the conceptual core of planning the movie, at least in the broadest strokes, Griffith partnered with the independent film production company Mutual to actually make the movie. It would be called The Klansman, and would be budgeted at $40,000. That $40,000 budget may not sound like much, but it was an impressive sum in 1915, four times as much as the cost of a normal feature film. With that kind of budget to work with, Griffith could make his movie an epic in every sense of the word. And he did so, consciously setting out to make what he wanted to be the greatest picture yet produced. The team that would make The Birth of a Nation would do nearly all of their work in Southern California, a place where film's presence was growing, but was not yet fully established. This movie would be one of the first major pictures filmed in that region, and did its part to popularize the location. You can listen to episode 16 for a fuller picture, but it's worth noting that the prestigious pictures, like the Klansmen being made in California, did their part to make it, for a time, the capital of film production for the entire world. So we've got the book, the money, and the location, but what would a movie be without actors? And this movie in particular would need plenty of actors. The film was planned from the beginning to be a complex story of interweaving narratives, and to keep it all going, Griffith would choose actors from his personal troupe of loyal players. 
Lillian Gish, who we met last episode, would play one of the female lead roles of the film and would be joined by other prominent actors like Mae Marsh, Henry B. Walthall, and Miriam Cooper, among others. Some others worth mentioning now are George Siegman, Walter Long, and Mary Alden, who would play the villains of the movie and who were, from the very beginning, to perform their roles in blackface. This was common practice at the time, and that is important context, but know that this depiction of black characters, characters written and portrayed by white people, would have a far-reaching impact on the lives of actual black people in the United States. It's also important to note that there were many African-American actors who did perform in The Birth of a Nation, but their parts were limited to that of extras. Again, this kind of systemic racism in casting was painfully common at the time of the release of The Birth of a Nation, but that context doesn't make it okay, and there were directors who did not follow this convention. Take Alice Guy, for example, who directed a one-reel film with an all-black cast in 1912, three whole years before the release of The Birth of a Nation. We need to move on to filming now, but it's worth noting that despite the cultural context that the subject of today's episode was made in, we've already seen examples of films pushing back against that context. From his first day of work on the project, Griffith was full of energy. To give us a look at Griffith's personal excitement for this feature film, let's listen to a clip from the 1993 television documentary, D.W. Griffith, The Father of Film. Griffith, unaware of what he was about to unleash, started his biggest film with an enthusiasm which intrigued Bitzer's assistant, Carl Brown. When he came on the set, he would take off his coat and he would start shadow bossing. And he would just have a fine time throwing whistling rights and jabbing lifts and ducking. And he always defeated the invisible man. And he could burst into Tannhauser or any of the arias of opera at any minute if there was tension on the set. That almost boyish exuberance for filmmaking, combined with his own idiosyncratic method of actually creating movies, made the process of working on the project bewildering to anyone whose name was not D.W. Griffith. As Lillian Gish would later say, Quote, we would often play episodes without knowing the complete story. Only Griffith knew the continuity of the movie in its final form. That meant that the movie would be made in classic Griffith style. There would be no written script. Instead, the director would keep everything in his own head and worked out the finer details of production through six weeks of extensive rehearsal and over nine weeks of shooting. And speaking of shooting, there was a healthy amount of it in this movie, and not just from cameras, but from real guns, loaded with blanks. Griffith would shoot battle scenes, and they were big. I mean really big. I mean still impressive today. True, it isn't Saving Private Ryan, but it holds up remarkably well, and when watching the battles, the scope of it all feels remarkably realistic. It's a scene where blanks are fired out of who knows how many rifles and cannons, where flares are used to light up the night sky, and where smoke bombs provide the illusion of actual mortars exploding on the ground. In order to make these battle scenes work, a couple of things had to happen. Griffith, 
unable to communicate to such a large group of people over what was effectively the din of a real battle, instead used flags to communicate. Off the field, Griffith would wave one flag, urging action from the actors playing the Army of the North, and another flag for the South, waving both of them when he wanted to encourage conflict in the center of the field. Of course, this direction wouldn't really be worth anything if the actors had to look at it, which would make their movement seem unnatural and stagey to the audience, so Griffith did something that we haven't seen before on this show. He hired second-unit directors. In film, a second unit is a kind of sidekick to the main production. Indispensable, but also not as glamorous. The first or main unit of film is usually under the careful watch of the director of the movie and the head cinematographer, and it has all or most of the lead actors in it. It's the sexy part, the part that everyone wants to be in. The second units do all of the important work that the director herself may not personally have time for. So, if the director of a movie is busy, let's say, I don't know, working with the actors Bill Murray, Idris Elba, and Angelica Houston, all of whom have critical scenes for the film and need careful direction, she could ask a second unit, led by a second unit director, to go film scenes of a crowd running from an explosion or something. This is often how movies will get shots of a city for a travel montage, or, let's say, shots of some orcs running around. It's all important work, but work that must be done without the direct supervision of the director to get it all done on time. In the case of The Birth of a Nation, second unit directors were directing the groups of soldiers in the battle scenes. Griffith, presiding over the fight like some sort of strange general, gave general orders, and these second unit directors did their best to translate those into something that looked good on film. One of the reasons The Birth of a Nation was able to be so epic in its scale was because of all of the hard, coordinated work of all of these second units and their directors. Second units did, and do, important work, and teach us, in yet one more way, that movies are made by many people, not by the artistic vision of one. We only have about 500 more ways we will see that left on this show. Also, please know, yet again, that like with everything Griffith, he did not invent the idea of second units or second unit directors. I haven't read anything about it specifically, but I'm fairly confident asking an assistant to go film some of the footage has been part of movies since the invention of editing 15 years earlier. Like everything Griffith is famous for, that fame comes from doing it well, not creating the idea firsthand. Griffith and his fellow filmmakers and actors poured more than just their soul into making this movie. They emptied their wallets into it, too. The cost of extras, sets, costumes, gunpowder, film, and more ballooned into a whopping $110,000. That was 11 times more than the cost of an average feature film of the day. Adjusted for inflation, the movie cost more than $3 million in 2021 buying power, which is next to nothing to make a movie today, but then it was bananas. Unable to get more than the original $40,000 from the Mutual Film Production Company, Griffith made the money however he could. He asked his principal actors to go without pay, missed production days asking local businesses for investment, and forewent his own salary, investing his own personal fortune into the movie. By the end of the nine-week period of principal photography, Griffith had spent every penny he had, and every penny anybody else had, too. And with those pennies, he bought footage. Lots of it.
the birth of a nation would be created from 1,544 distinct shots. That is an especially impressive number when you consider that the Italian epics, which in many ways are the most complex movies we have seen so far, usually included less than 100 shots. Griffith would spend the next three months editing the Klansmen out of this absolute soup of footage he had to work with. The footage of The Birth of a Nation had shots of dancing that were exquisite, with movement perfectly choreographed for film. There were close-ups for melodrama, long shots of tremendous battle, and tracking shots of galloping horses full of energy. Griffith would cross-cut between shots, milking parallel editing for its maximum dramatic effect. He did this with shots of the clan, which, at least to me, seem as carefully planned as they are nightmarishly terrifying. From this footage, Griffith would craft the movie that would shock the world. The movie that would show, for the first time, the real power of cinema to impact the attitudes and behaviors of its audience. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of The History of Film. This subject, this movie, will require more than one episode to talk about in its full scope, so we'll finish it up next week with part two of The Birth of a Nation. If you like the show and want to help it grow, the biggest thing that you can do for that is leaving a review wherever you listen. Taking one minute to leave a review on Apple Podcast will help other people find the show and also let me know what you like about it. If you would like to email me, you can do so at historyoffilmpodcast at gmail.com. And you can visit the show's website, historyoffilmpodcast.com, to view resources for the show and its episodes. Thank you for listening, and join me next week for another exciting episode of the History of Film.